Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Lauren Van Haften Schick, a, a curator and writer from New York City and a PhD candidate in the history of art and visual studies at Cornell University. We will discuss her article, Conceptualizing Artists' Rights, Circulations of the Siegelaub Prozhansky Agreement Through Art and Law, which was published in Oxford Handbook Online Law, as well as her continuing work on the artist contract and, and related issues. So welcome to the show, Lauren. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, the pleasure's all all mine. As you know, I've, I've been a, a fan of your work for, for quite some time now and have done some work in, in similar areas. And so I'm, I'm especially pleased to have, have you on the program because I think your work, while written primarily in an art historical context, has a lot to share with legal scholars uh, as well about a really fascinating and I think um, under under understood area of of kind of crossover between art and and contracting. But f- for listeners who might not be familiar with the art world and how the art world works, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how artwork is is typically sold and what kinds of rights and interests artists typically retain in their artwork after they sell it. Huh. Well, it's minimal. <laughs> um, uh, you know, what, well, well, we'll just stick with the U.S. context here for ease. Um, you know, there, it, it's it's very common. You know that that no agreements um, are signed between artists and collectors when their work is sold. And you know, I, I'm I'm naming agreements specifically not just because we're going to talk about the Siegelab Brzezinski agreement, but because Agreements are very different from, say, you know, certificates of authenticity or other forms of paperwork, which have become um, quite normal uh, in art transactions. You know, and an agreement between the artist and collector, something you know, stipulates something like you know, artist ongoing rights or uh, even what their kind of ongoing relationship is to the collector really, really don't exist. Typically what happens is, or generally don't exist, I'll say. Typically what happens is like if a work is sold through a dealer, you know, the dealer does all the interfacing with the collector. They, you know, might discuss like issues around installation or maintenance of the work, depending on the kind of work that it is. Um, A price gets agreed upon, an invoice gets sent out, that's about it. The dealer might tell the artist, will tell the artist that the work sold. You know, it oftentimes or, you know, not always uh, will the dealer tell the artist who purchased the work. Artists might need to ask that specifically. So really, there's a, a big kind of a, you know, I don't know, I guess like, like curtain <laughs> that exists um, that blocks, tends to block off artists from the parties who um, end up acquiring and owning their works into the future. Um, you know, in, in the U.S., there are, you know, now certain, you know, continuing rights, like we have moral rights laws, you know, since 1990 that um, protect an artist's work, you know, from being destroyed or, you know, from being modified or or presented in a manner that would be, uh, you know, this is, the language of the statute, prejudicial to their reputation. Um, You know, artists retain the copyright in their work now, uh, although that wasn't the case, uh, you know, before 76. Um, And, uh, but, you know, we have no resale royalties under law. uh, And basically, it's just standard practice that artists are typically kept in the dark. Um, There's one, there was one beautiful move um, that, uh, the artist Louise Lawler made in her MoMA retrospective that kind of uh, illuminated this this um, norm, I guess. Where uh, in, in in her MoMA retrospective, which was last year, I think, um, she uh, included in the the didactic wall labels for each work um, a list of who owned each edition for a work. And I think in you know about half of the cases, there was something like you know. 
you know, collector unknown or, you know, so like the work was sold, but she exposed the extent to which artists are again, really kind of kept um, in the dark about what happens to their work after it leaves their hands. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was saying, and, and to clarify for listeners, what you're talking about here, I mean, these are oftentimes very significant transactions in dollar terms as well. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it varies, you know, it's, I, I would say these norms kind of exist at all levels of the market. Um, what's more, co- so, you know, anything from like a sale of a work for you know $2,000 to, you know, $200,000, whatever, and up. Um, what it is more common that you'll see contracts now at the upper, upper, upper <laughs> end of the market where galleries ask for, um, the right of first refusal if the collector is going to resell the work or, or will ask for, you know, a, a, you know, the, the collector not to sell, not to resell a work in less than five years, this kind of thing. But that's really about controlling um, the the value of the work in the secondary market, the price value of the work in the spec in the secondary market and the speed at which um, speculation might occur. But it's not really geared towards informing artists so much about, again, who owns their work and what is what happens to it down the line. Um, and it's certainly, in general, not the norm that artists, you know, are just even like kept abreast of uh, uh, what happens to it, whether it's going to be resold or, you know, they'll be asked if it's going to be reproduced, probably. Um, but there's just a whole host of things that can happen in the life of the work that, that the artist is really left out of. So you mentioned among other things, artists resale royalties and the fact that they, they don't exist in the United States really at all at this point anymore. Um, uh, I wonder if you could just say a little something about what artists resale royalties are and how the United States is different from some other countries in that respect? Uh, well, some form of a resale royalty exists in over 70 countries worldwide now. Um, uh, they initially started in France in 1920 and kind of slowly worked their way through most European jurisdictions, um, harmonized in EU law uh, now in 2001 and uh, have extended to the UK. Hopefully they stay there post-Brexit. We'll see. Um, but basically, resale royalties um, give an artist a percentage of the value of their work, the price you know, of the work, um, money. <laughs> when the work is resold, <clears throat> generally at auction, uh, some jurisdictions um, have a resale royalty kick in it, when works are resold by dealers or individuals. It, it can varies from place to place. Um, but in... I, really, the fact that it exists in so many countries it raises very big questions about, I think, why we don't have it yet in the U.S. Um, or other countries, you know, that have been slow to pick it up. Like Canada, for example, doesn't have it either. Um, the U.S. did have a resale royalties law, which was enacted in California in 1976, but it's basically been uh, completely uh, struck down through a series of, of uh, court cases over the last uh, eight or so years. Um, so really, artists are pretty on their own here in terms of any kind of statutory protections for it. Um, yeah. Yeah, right. So, I mean, essentially, resale royalties create then a sort of ongoing financial interest on the part of an artist in their artwork after it's sold to a collector and then when it's resold on the secondary market in some circumstances, they're entitled to some percentage of that resale, right? Yes. Okay. So in your paper, you point or you talk among other things about a particular historical moment in the late sixties and early seventies. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what was happening in the art world and sort of among artists at that point in time? And why were artists objecting to certain aspects of the art market and their relationship to the art market in that point of time? And sort of what were they trying to do? Mm. Well, 
there were a number of sort of major shifts happening in the year. Um, for one, uh, the art market in the U.S. in particular really was kind of exploding in the mid-1960s. 1964, it can kind of be pointed to as a watershed year. I mean, that's the year that Robert Rauschenberg wins the main prize at the Venice Biennale. That's the first American for uh, to do so. Um, it's it's when um, art investment funds begin and really is the moment when uh, the kind of intersection of uh, the financial world really kind of um, steps into the art world. Um, and in that time, too, you have artists kind of becoming aware of this aspect um, actually fairly quickly. Um you have auction houses sprouting up around the U.S. Um, Sotheby's Park Bernay becomes a real force in New York and also opens up in California. And um, at the same time, artists are also kind of beginning to experiment with their sort of legal terms in their work, by which I mean begin to problematize how their work um, can be owned um, and can be resold. Does it have to materialize as an object or not? Um, these become really central questions in you know what we think of as you know conceptual art, um, which um, you know I mentioned this in my um, in in the article, but you know maybe the sort of the the two artists who we could think of as like um, uh, very uh, sort of clear examples of these moves are. are um, Lawrence Wiener and uh, Saul DeWitt. So in 1969, for example, like uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Wiener, um, working with the curator and dealer of conceptual art, Seth Kigalab, kind of begins moving away from just producing, you know, sculptures or, you know, um, sculptural kind of interventions and begins producing kind of statements um, or texts um, that just describe what a sculpture might be and then leaves it to the collector to kind of manifest the work either materially or just as text, but also kind of starts. Um, and, oh, and, and with those works, um, uh, he accompanies each of them with a registration certificate um, that each collector then owns. So what the collector ends up having is a, is a, is a registration kind of certificate saying what the work is um, instead of any kind of like physical object and also starts um, another kind of stream of work, which he designates as public freehold, which can never be um, owned or never be uh, uh, sold, bought and sold essentially. Um, or then, you know, like Solowit is sort of like the, the primary example. I think that a lot of people um, imagine when they think of conceptual art and um, his work is, you know, we've all probably seen it in contemporary art museums. You know, these are geometric wall drawings that are very expansive. Um, their sort of permanent manifestation is only as instructions on a certificate that um, list, you know, how the work is to be done, but also who its installers um, have been each time that it's been shown and then the locations um, uh, where it's been shown. So, you know, there's this idea of like, the artist's hand is unnecessary here. The idea of the work is the most important thing. Um, and again, here the collector just owns uh, a certificate describing the thing, and it can actually physically be realized basically anywhere. Um, so these are these are kind of the, the market <laughs> phenomena that are happening at the time. Um, some of the artistic phenomena that's happening at the time. Uh, but then alongside all of this, we have, you know, probably best, you know, most famously about this period is this incredibly lively world of, of activism among artists. And it's very, very tied into the anti-war movement and, you know, to a certain degree, counterculture. Um, but it really sparks within artists um, a kind of resistance to um, their work falling into hands that they would politically disagree with. Um, and by that, I mean, artists become very sensitive to um, their work either being um, 
used as a way of promoting, you know, the kind of like beneficence of the U.S. government. So, for example, like artists pull out of a lot of international exhibitions where they would be there to represent the U.S. Um, you have artists protesting against museums directly, um, both um, in order to target, you know, the political or, again, economic interests of trustees um, or museum directors. <laughs> this actually sounds very familiar today, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and then you also have artists like really seeing as a kind of um, way to target museums or to, you know, target exhibitions um, to claim rights in their works themselves. So the sort of question arises of, you know, how can artists, you know, control their work and really um, uh, have a say in, you know, how they are um, presented in museums or, or the way in which their work is kind of like, like um, instrumentalized for, you know, the, the, reputation of museums or, you know, to use to uh, build, you know, cultural capital for museums or on and on and on. Um, they see a, as a way of addressing those issues, um, uh, the the need to kind of like use their work as the tool of that protest. And so there's this, um, you know, pretty uh, iconic moment uh uh, or, or iconic protest that happens in um, uh, in early January 1969, where the artist Takis and, and a few others um, uh, remove one of his sculptures from MoMA uh, when it was on view uh, against his will, included in an exhibition that he kind of disagreed with the context of. Um, and, he, and he takes his sculpture out into the garden at the Museum of Modern Art and just sits there with it. Um, waiting for the, the the museum director to come out and meet with him and and hear the artist's terms. And that move ends up sparking the creation of what's probably the best known artist activist group from that period, which is the Art Workers Coalition. Um, and they really kind of go on to, uh, again, kind of embody all of this like protest action that I've been outlining and, you know, do everything against, you know, from, from, from protests against MoMA and the Met and museums all over the city to, you know, um, uh, uh, protests, uh, uh, mobilization against, again, artist participation in these kind of international exhibitions. Um, and this question about artists' rights and artists' rights in their work really becomes entangled with these kind of broader economic and political conditions. When these issues are discussed in a legal or legal scholarship context, I feel like there's often a sort of very reductive take on what was going on where, you know, we as legal scholars tend to say, oh, well, the concern was artist resale royalties. And so this was a debate over artist resale royalties. But your description suggests that there was something a lot deeper going on in in which resale royalties may have played a part, but maybe only a small part in relation to a bigger set of kind of ethical, moral, social, and political concerns about artists' relationship to their work and the role it played in the art world and in the kind of social world more broadly. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I think, and I think it's something that really gets, it does really get lost. And, and in some ways, I think it's a product of just how expansive the activities of, you know, groups like the Art Workers Coalition were, and also just how diverse, um, well, quite simply, artist practices were. I mean, even, you know, saying the the word or the umbrella term conceptual art is, you know, kind of a problem in itself because there's so many different kinds of artist practices that fall beneath that umbrella. I mean, this is just a problem of naming genres in general in some ways, but, um, but as far as the protest activity goes, definitely resale royalties were one part of it, but a very small part of it. There's, um, um, uh, so, so one of the, sort of most widely circulated or reproduced documents of the Art Workers Coalition is this list of 13 demands um, that was written in early 69, pretty, pretty um, 
quickly after that initial protest that I mentioned in January of that year. Um, and that just kind of is a rough list of like, you know, uh, uh, museums, you know, uh, uh, just need to kind of, uh, um, um, have artists, you know, on their board within the museums, uh, museums need to, to, to establish open, you know, terms of communication with artists to make sure that artists needs are met when their work is exhibited. It's, you know, it's, and, 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 and legal rights are listed in that initial set of demands, but it's very, very basic. And it's, um, strange to me that that's the document that gets circulated the most because there's a revised Art Workers Coalition, um, set of demands, which I've become much more interested in, um, from summer of 1969, where, you know, it, it, it lists more specifically the museum's, you know, need to, uh, be open, you know, for free for one day to address, uh, uh, you know, the, the needs of working people to be able to see the museum. Um, it lists, you know, more in depth, the, how museums should, um, also really make efforts to to work with and represent black and Hispanic communities in New York um, and beyond. Um, but it also uh, reserves um, economic and more explicitly legal rights for a, a subsection, um, which begins with the header, um, you know, until uh, a, a minimum income <laughs> is uh, I, I wish I had it in front of me. Actually, I should have pulled it up. But uh, until 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 a minimum income is established for all people, for all artists, artists should then uh, uh, fight for you know the following rights, and within that is included resale royalties. But I've become very interested in this kind of revised document because it really foregrounds a much much broader notions of um kind of equity within society at large and not just artists rights and especially not just the rights of individual artists um also as as the art workers coalition uh kind of progressed a lot of other voices ended up um speaking out in favor of of rethinking resale royalties, not just as benefiting individual artists from, you know, when, when their work is resold, but as resale royalties that could be basically pooled into a fund that would be redistributed to pay for, say, the healthcare needs of other artists or, you know, even materials, all kinds of things. So, but just to say that, that I think, you know, very quickly, um, but which has been remarkably overlooked, the concern really wasn't even about the needs of it, artists as individuals so much as kind of thinking very, very expansively about how the wealth that the art market was beginning to produce could be more equitably distributed among artists in general, um, which I think is also connected to this sort of demand at the time to just find ways of also redirecting, you know, wealth from those in power of our cultural and political institutions, um, which a lot of artists disagreed with. Mm, mm. So one of the kind of offshoots of the Art Workers Coalition, which has gotten more attention recently in your work and, and that of other people, is the Artist Contract, which was written and published by Seth Siegelaub and Robert Przansky. So I wonder if you could just briefly talk about who they were, you know, what the artist contract was and what it sort of did and was intended to accomplish. Sure. Um, so Seth Siegelob is really best known for his work as a, a curator and dealer of conceptual art 
works, <laughs> um, really only from a very brief period, only about 1968 to 71 was he active in that world. Um, his, he opened the gallery in 1964, though, it was much more conventional, um, ran that until 1966, essentially um, had no money <laughs> by the end of it. Um, and kind of in, given that position, it was really kind of... Um, forced in a way, but I think also embraced, very openly embraced, actually. Um, rethinking kind of what uh, not just art exhibitions could look like, but also how the business of art could operate. And so um, his real kind of seminal moves uh, really date from like late 68, early 69, when he begins organizing a series of exhibitions that did not rely on um, any kind of traditional gallery. He had a model at all. I mean, he had no stable space, um, but instead started uh, organizing shows either in a couple of temporary spaces or, and then kind of most, most importantly um, developed this model of um, the, the, the catalog exhibition where essentially a books would be the, the primary format of an exhibition, or in his words, the primary information of an exhibition. Uh, and then if there was a physical uh, exhibition of works also, there wasn't always, um, the, the physical exhibition of works would be relegated to kind of secondary status. So, so it was this kind of reversal of um, the typical hierarchy between, you know, um, unique works in space that you had to, you know, go to and access, um, be able to access, um, and, you know, their sort of reproduction in print. Now their version in print, which circulated much more widely um, and cheaply, in, that's very important actually, um, really became the, the, the main way in which these shows uh, were realized. <clears throat> um, uh, it, it, in the, the artist contract uh, was really kind of his last move in in many ways in uh, the contemporary art world. He sort of took up uh, projects in art again in the 1990s, but um, in 1972, he moved to France and uh, really turned his interest to uh, Marxist theory and the publishing and and uh, starting um, a, a very... Uh, fascinating and and kind of like ad hoc uh research center on um uh marxist studies and 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 media theory um and did that until the mid 80s um after which his interest turned towards uh the history of textiles and specifically kind of uh, labor and manufacturing of them uh and then at the end of his life his interest actually turned back to again as i said back to art um reassessing kind of the the politics of um, how art history is written and kind of the way in which um, it tends to be, you know, dominated by market interests actually. Um, and, and his, his interest did actually turn to art law. He, in, at the end of his life, he, towards the end of his life, he collaborated with um, uh, art law, art lawyer and curator, Daniel McLean on a project called the art law resource center, which I, I actually um, worked with him as a, as a research assistant on as well. Uh, years ago before he passed away yeah um so uh but but to go back to uh uh the 60s <laughs> um for Jansky, just briefly um was uh you know a relatively young lawyer when he connected with Siegelob um he had i i guess it, his entree into the art world was, uh, or his main one was, was, uh, working with this group of artists known as the Judson three, um, who had been arrested, uh, for, uh, flag desecration at, a at a very, again, sort of famous exhibition, um, at the Judson church in late 1970, just called the flag show. Um, and actually in the mid 1970s, he went on to really do a lot of very good work, um, in helping artists navigate New York City's loft laws and was very instrumental in um, uh, really, again, kind of thinking through what, what or, or helping artists, I guess, in, in really like thinking beyond what their needs are, you know, other than 
market issues, but, you know, particularly things like housing and, you know, on and on from there. Um, so, but, but to, to get to the main, uh, <laughs> the, the focus now, which is this, the, the artist reserved rights transfer and sale agreement sort of offhand in the art world referred to as the artist contract offhand in the legal world referred to as the Perjansky agreement, which we can talk about. That's kind of an interesting rhetorical thing right there. Um, <clears throat> It's essentially uh, a, a was devised, uh, well, was written by Stiglob and Perjansky. Stiglob wrote the introduction. Perjansky wrote the contract portion. But it really was a factor of all of these, you know, this kind of swarm of, uh, you know, uh, uh, activism and, and legal experimentation by artists. Um, and also was the product of input from many, many, many people. I mean, in Siegelob's introduction says that he, he surveyed 500 people in the art world um, about what should go into its terms. I'm not convinced that it was 500, but uh, (laughs) it's, I think of it as much more of a a collaborative document um, beyond just Siegelob and Perjansky, really from many, many foreign people in the art world. But Essentially, its key terms are um, giving artists um, 15% of the accrued value of their work upon resale. Um, it allows artists to con- to uh, basically uh, approve of or veto the exhibition of their uh, works, even after they've been transferred and sold. Um, and it, there are a number of other rights, like like artists get to borrow their work, you know, periodically. They um, it, it gives artists uh, moral rights protections that were not covered in U.S. law at the time. It uh, ensures that artists retain copyright in their work, which pre-1976 was actually kind of generally assumed to transfer with title. Um, and, and all of the terms in the agreement continue throughout, really throughout the life of the work as it passes hands. Um, it is only signed between artist and collector at first sale, and then all subsequent sales are signed between, you know, collect buyer and seller. So, like, you know, the first collector signs it with the second collector, and so on. Um, and really, its core, core, core principle, or was that artists deserve to have ongoing rights in their work, ongoing say over what happens with their work. And, you know, in Siegelob's words, uh, this was a solution, you know, for basically, you know, what artists had previously, which was nothing. (laughs) So it it really was um, radical in the sense that it attempted to synthesize all of these demands that were coming from various groups, not just the Art Workers Coalition, and also to kind of tie in the kind of very unusual um, connections to their work or, or just terms surrounding their work that artists were sort of also trying to um, establish with things like certificates of authenticity, um, uh, where an artist maybe said that they wanted to be informed of the future life or so on. Um, but it, it really... It really marks also a, a quite peculiar, peculiar, but again also radical collaboration um, between someone coming more from the art side, you know, Seth Siegelob, and someone coming pretty exclusively from the law side, Robert Perjansky, and kind of coming up with this um, device for um, that or or that that attempted to kind of push the boundaries of what artists' rights could look like under law, but also um, how artists' social relations, or, you know, I should say, like, relations with collectors and dealers, you know, could kind of otherwise uh, play out or be conceived. Um, and it, 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 it is still used um, by some artists from that generation, Um Hans Hacke is probably the most famous one who has been using it since 1971. Um, Adrian Piper uses a revised version of it, which, uh, only since 1997. Um, and then there's also uh, some younger artists who have picked it up again 
too, um, which is very surprising. It's having a little bit of a renaissance right now, I would say. Yeah. You know, I, I got to say, Lauren, like one of the things that I found really illuminating and profound in your work that I hadn't seen anywhere else was precisely the sort of recognition of the sort of interaction between the artistic and legal perceptions or perspectives on what the artist contract was and what it was for and how when it's looked at by lawyers and legal scholars, we tend to see the form document and the kind of the law-like elements of it as being dominant. And so, as you know, like refer to it as the Prozhansky contract. But it wasn't until I read your paper that it really hit home to me that the core of the document is actually the introduction written by Seth Siegelow, which I think is much more sophisticated in a lot of ways about what the purpose of the document is than the actual sort of form contract itself. And it it almost struck me as like Seth Siegelow's like last like Hail Mary like conceptual artwork before he moved on to something new because it was like he was conceptualizing a vision, like a kind of syncretic vision of what the artist's relationship to their work in the art market ought ought to be. I mean, what do you think about that relationship between Siegelau and Prezhansky in that way? And and how do you think that that is, re- is reflected, if at all, in the way that artists actually understood the contract themselves and used it? Hmm. Well, Seth is a, is a pretty fascinating character in a lot of ways. And I, and I think, I think there's a lot to be gleaned, you know, about the contract, just from sort of understanding his career. And what I find so fascinating, which, which is that he really sought collaborations in unusual places uh, from day one. Um, very, very, very early on, he not only, I think, you know, even, even when he had a more sort of traditional gallery from 64 to 66, which is just Seth Siegelob contemporary art, he really made an effort to, um, seek not just advice, you know, from, you know, accountants familiar with the art world and, and actually lawyers familiar with the art world and other dealers. Um, but he really, I think, took lessons from uh, people he was meeting in the finance world. Um, lawyers who were sort of thinking, like willing to think very openly about, say, how like foundations could be structured or even how art investment funds, which I mentioned earlier, could be structured. Um I've spent a lot of time in his in his archives at this point, and I've I've been really struck consistently by um, the many different kinds of um, close relationships he had with sort of professionals in the law and finance world, um, and also not just close relationships on, in like a business sense, but in the sense of I think really wanting to understand what they did and how they thought and applying their way of seeing how the art market works to problems in the art market, if that makes sense. So for example, I've been having um, this more kind of traditional gallery space and moving into conceptual art projects. He did actually, um, come up with kind of very experimental business models um, for, uh, um, um, say, an advising, an art advising company that would work with um, corporations to build their collections, which was in the late 60s, still very uh, atypical thing or still a very new thing. Or, you know, partnering with like, um, materials companies like Formica to, to, to think of ways where he could, you know, um, get materials from them, you know, that, that sculptors he knew wanted to work with, um, 
in exchange, you know, for works by those sculptures. This was sculptors. This was something he did with artist Doug, Douglas Hubler before Hubler started making, you know, what we think of as more conceptual work and, you know, manifesting his documents and photographs. Um, and, and he also, I, I think, was just very kind of open in a way um, to thinking about what artists could learn from the ways in which practitioners in these other fields kind of understood um, just quite simply how money flows, how law is written, how legal rights can be um, asserted and written and structured. And I, so, I, you know, I, I really see that relationship between Siegelab and Prochansky not only as, you know, one in many um, um, collaborations that he did with people in these fields, but as a real kind of um, uh, beautiful display of uh, curiosity about what happens in these fields and also willingness to use, you know, law, legal, legal language, the form of a contract as a kind of, um, not just a platform, but as like a, a, a malleable form in itself as a space of really, you know, kind of creation in itself. I mean, we could even think of, you know, the, the, the artist contract as like, you know, a, a proposal for, you know, some other, uh, you know, alternative way that the art market could work that the artwork art world could even be structured and in its in its uh, you know conception as this kind of alternative art world maybe we could see it as like another alternative space or another kind of like experimental like exhibition format within a a, a very thick lineage of experimental exhibition formats throughout the you know, secret lab's life in this time um but I say all this about Stiglob, Stiglob as, as a person because I feel like, you know, within the art world, um, there's a real kind of resistance in a way to uh, – this is like a stereotype that I'm saying right now. So, I, you know, forgive me. But it, there's a little bit of truth to it, <laughs> you know. But I think there's a real resistance to um, having close relationships you know, with this kind of like professional class or from like taking seriously um, the work of, you know, again, people in finance, people in law. Um, because I don't know, because it's like, it's it's people in those class who are your collectors and there are always, you know, uh, very complex power relationships between artists and collectors you know, I don't know what it is, but like, but there, there are real kind of resistances to it in a way. Um, but, and, but, but I actually find his openness to learn from these people and, um, to sort of work with them to rethink, say what law could look like, what a financial relationship in art could look like. Um, as very inspiring and actually as a, even just as, as a, as a way of thinking or approaching these problems, um, as a real valuable model that goes so far beyond any one document, um, any one contract into something, uh, yeah, that we could, we could maybe like look back to and, and think about even just like how we could learn from his, learn from his model in, in a different problems now. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that really didn't hit me until I read your article was the extent to which Siegelaub himself like really did sort of explicitly frame the the artist contract as at least partially, if not primarily, like a rhetorical document or an aspirational document describing what a relationship ought to look like. And it was like, it's so easy to, for lawyers and law professors to say, well, you know, is this enforceable? You know, like to what extent does this fit into the boxes, you know, that we use to describe legal relationships? And I feel like in a lot of ways that kind of misses the whole point of the project. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, 
I mean, if this ever did go to court, I would hope that <laughs> the artist wouldn't be screwed. But, but um, <laughs> although I don't know, I, I, uh, I, I'm sort of of two minds about it. But yes, I, I agree with you. Um, I mean, that the, you know, the, the, the introduction really is in itself a kind of um, uh, a manifesto. And I'm not the you know, only person to say it that way. Um, it really does. I, I think like paint this kind of like ideal it's ideal vision of what artist rights could look like. But at the same time, you know, and while it does say, you know, like there's all this bombast in it and it says, you know, artists should be able to have ongoing rights in their work. They should, it's, it's the artist rights that counts. It's, it's, you know, what the artist desires for their work. That's the only thing that matters at the same time. There are a lot of moments in the introduction when Siegel Abbasso steps back from that and emphasizes the real importance of interpersonal relationships between artists and the collectors of their work and even artists and dealers. So I, I, I see it as, as not just sort of asking for this, you know, sort of um, um, maybe even utopian, I don't know, you know, uh, alternative vision of of a more equitable art world but i also see um see it as as asking for us to kind of again like uh, honor uh almost is what i want to say um the degree to which artists collectors dealers and also their accountants and lawyers all of the people in this mess <laughs> um are really um dependent on each other and need to work together too in in if the goal is to you know come up with something that's like a more um equitable agreement or equitable market that's something that can't be born out of a purely kind of combative bombastic attitude that's something that has to be struck in partnership so i think that's actually very important aspect of it as well um the interesting it, it is interesting though that, that you're that you're saying that um the introduction kind of tends to get left out of a lot of legal literature and it's it's interesting i think there's something that that i didn't really realize until relatively recently when a, a collector who had signed the the agreement with an artist um pointed out to me but when collectors buy works with the agreement, they're not given the introduction. They only get the contract half of it. So there's an interesting way in which um, the contract introduction really kind of stays a document written for artists. Like it's the instructions that only the artist ever sees. And then the contract portion is what the collector sees. Huh. So. Yeah, I I don't know I don't know quite what to I'm I'm still sort of un, unpacking I think I think there's a lot of there's a lot of symbolism in that or there's you know there's a lot of kind of added meaning in that but an artist I I was talking about this with an artist maybe just last week even and and he, but he phrased it very succinctly which is simply that you know the introduction is actually for artists so in the sense of like maybe it is actually a, like a private message to them but like a private message to them that's saying that, you know, whatever this, you know, new vision of an art market is, it's about your rights. It's about claiming as much as you can in your work or as much as you want in your work, but also to sort of temper that and to come to that, you know, with, not forgetting the importance of say negotiation or the importance of all the people that you're going to have to work with in the process of making this contract work. Um, yeah. It's a very complex document. <laughs> you know, there's a beauty. You know, I, didn't, I didn't even say this, but the form, actually the, the, the aesthetics of the document, the physical form of it, as it was initially circulated anyway, is very important. So it was, um, Initially printed as a poster, two-sided, with Siegelob's introduction on one side and Prajansky's contract on the other. So in that sense, 
you already have these kind of two sides of the agreement. They're in opposition or they're taken in isolation from each other, you know, however you want to read that. You know, there's there's been a sort of long and interesting conversation around the artist contract among artists as well. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how and why artists have used the contract, what they've tried to do with it. And also, you know, to the extent that some artists have like not used the contract or been critical of it in some ways, what were they criticizing? And do you think those criticisms are well taken? Mm. Well, one of the most, most vocal critics of it at the time, and even since is Lawrence Wiener, whose work I mentioned, and he was close friends with Seagalab throughout Seagalab's uh, well, really, until Siegel passed away in 2013. Um, but his view on it uh, was that it really reduces the artist to a speculator in their work. Um, the problem is that it does nothing to sort of structurally change um, how you know value is accumulated um, in artworks and and in the art market in general. Um, all it does is sort of add the artist into that equation. So that's his sort of big criticism is that it doesn't do enough to actually um, um, question the art market as it exists. Uh, That actually has been a fairly common criticism, I would say. I mean, I have to say one of the things that really got me started on this whole topic was um, a, a book by um, an art historian, um, Alexander Albero, who uh, has an has a important book on Siegelob's uh, early career, which is uh, Conceptual Art and the Politics of Publicity. Um, but Al- Albero um, ends his text by kind of essentially saying that um, the artist contract, rather than, again, kind of undermining the art market or questioning it, um, basically just gave conceptual artists a a vehicle through which they could now more readily sell um, immaterial works. Um, So, you know, instead of questioning the market, it basically just like was like, Oh great. Here's a bill of sale now. (laughs) Easy. Um, um, That's an exaggeration. Um, I mean, I, a lot of the, a lot of the criticisms that it's received from artists, from lawyers, from others, um, are pretty similar to the criticisms that resale royalties tend to receive in general. Um, that's important to note one, just because by far in the U S anyway, um, the contract is really best known for its resale royalties clause. Um, but critics of that tend to say that it, it's really um, like un- unjust for collectors in the sense of like, well, if an artist can profit when the value goes up, what about what happens when the value of the work goes down? Should the artist have to pay the collector or, you know, what about recognizing how much time and, and, and money, the, how many resources the art the, that collectors go, um, the collectors put into say storing works over time. And, you know, if collectors put so much, uh, money into caring for works well why should the artist get anything the collectors deserves um any profit they might get um these are sort of some of the core criticism criticisms of it oh and then just the fact that it's a contract too is very offensive to some people and this is one that i kind of always go back and forth over but the the biggest criticism over just the fact that it's a contract really comes down to what I think gets conceived as this kind of like, like, like hyper transactional um, culture that it uh, introduces into the art world or this sort of like demand to like make everything hyper official, hyper legalistic. Um, When, you know, one of the things that we love and hate about the art world is that, nobody signs contracts, <laughs> which is to say that it's still a kind of very informal world in a lot of ways. So it's tricky though, because on one hand, yeah, it's great that the art world gets to be this kind of, you know, outsider space, but at the same time, 
I mean, in my view, I think that's also opens up a lot of room for, quite frankly, you know, exploitation sometimes or or just misunderstandings. I mean, forget exploitation. Um, so it, it's it's very mixed, but it always raises it's always an emotional reaction. I've never had a conversation with anybody about the contract that did not become a kind of, you know, emotional conversation at some point, be it out of anger because of this, um, kind of, again, like hyper sort of transactional, um, culture that it asks for, or because, you know, they think that its terms are unjust in some way, whatever it is. Um, it, it always kind of sparks this kind of response. Mm-hmm. Well, so Lauren, I mean, in, in closing, it really seems like the artist's contract and the sort of broader questions that it posed are having a real moment like right now and in the last several years. And I know that you've been doing a lot of work on that front, kind of studying its historical resonance and how people have been kind of responding to and reviving it. I mean, I wonder if you could reflect on why that is and sort of what people are doing today in this same vein and how are they sort of adapting or, you know, kind of reviving some of these ideas in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of it's so, so I just went over some of its criticisms, but I think a lot of it's the reasons for supporting it um, still really resonate for a lot of artists. So, I mean, some of the reasons for supporting it have simply been just this fact that, you know, this goes back to the Art Workers Coalition, you know, this like fact of recognition of, of just how much, how much um, wealth the, <laughs> the art market is capable of producing, but for a very small set of people. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it's, I think, increasingly seen as kind of a way of um, questioning that system. And maybe again, just asking, you know, for the artist to get some of that in turn. So, you know, as resale royalties laws have spread, it's it's definitely gotten a lot more attention as an important precursor. But also, I think as um, issues around, um, well, the 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 mass kind of inflation that we've seen um, of the art market in the last at the again at the upper end, you know, really since the recession. I mean, it's just amazing how in, in uh, you know the art art basel and art market reports which are these um very very good very thorough kind of uh, annual assessments of um uh uh how you know sales at art fairs are expanding and auctions are expanding how the you know gallery market is shifting and consistently for the last few years even that report which is produced by the most powerful art fair <laughs> in the whole industry is is has been making arguments that um the upper end is just growing and growing and growing at the real expense of the middle tier of the gallery world and the art world um to the extent that the middle tier and lower tiers are now suffering really extremely um so you know any any kind of wealth that's come back into the art market since the recession of 10 years ago has just accumulated at the top. Um, so I think artists are sort of really getting, uh, becoming more attuned to this and really desperate to do something about it. And not just artists. I think it's, you know, a conversation among dealers and even, uh, you know, museum board members and things like this now. Um, but it's, it's also coming up again in issues around um, gender inequity in the art world. I mean, this is, um, uh, well, actually, this is a, an artist who, you know, we've ta- we've discussed now, but uh, for example, as a young artist in New York, Alex Strada has written a, a revised version of the contract um, where she calls for uh, the any work purchased with it to be resold in 10 years and any accrued value to be spent on the work of another emerging female artist or um 
you know, there's an artist in, in Montreal, Arcadia Lavoie-Lachapelle, who's made a similar kind of feminist critique of the contract where she has, um, she asks for 100% of the royalty to come back to her. Um, but I, I think that these kind of bigger sort of social critiques um, have also have links um, to the way that the contract was taken up in the 1970s. Um, for example, artist uh, Jackie Windsor used it from 1973 to 79. And for her, uh, I learned this even just in, you know, speaking with her last month, you know, for her, the demand for resale royalty, the demand for her work to really be cared for um, at this sort of extreme level wasn't so much about this, like, um, um, sort of like a like a like just like a forceful notion of artist rights but it was really about equity for her and equity in the sense that it was tied to demands of the women's movement and tied to demands for her to be taken seriously um as a woman artist as any of her male peers um so you know it's interesting to see all of these different valences of the contract's meanings kind of come up and recirculate again. And I think that for, for me, some of the ones, some of the sort of new conversations around it that I'm most excited about um, are where, going back to this redistribution question, like redistribution is really coming up as an issue with it. Um, so, you know, the Strata contract does that. I think that the La Chapelle contract hints at that. Um, I'm actually, I'm working uh, with a curator uh, at the Cottis Foundation to sort of rethink it to these ends. Um, uh, and I can think of examples of, uh, oh, Katie Noland, for example, in, in the early 80s, um, used it, but stipulated that um, a percentage of the resale royalty or, or the resale royalty would go towards um, uh, a nonprofit benefiting um, homeless populations. So, you know, I, I think in, in, in these, in it's most fascinating right now in, in some ways for the way that it's, it's revising or, or, or asking us to pay attention to these kind of broader social concerns that, um, were its initial context, but also kind of how maybe these broader social concerns um, are what the art market and participants within it are maybe interested in addressing now. Mm, mm, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of these newer uses you describe, you know, while framed in some ways as kind of critical interventions are very much in some ways also in the, in, in the spirit of the original. Yeah. And I think asking for more, too. You know, it's really not just a matter of resale royalties. It's really not just a matter of of artists having a say in what happens with their work down the line. I mean, those are important parts of it. But I think what's really important to stress in, you know, about the context from which the contract came and about our current moment is just the sort of bigger questions that it asks about, um, well, quite simply, like, you know, how do we want just not this industry to function, but how do we want culture to function? How do we want, you know, this, the culture industry to function? How do we want relationships between, you know, authors and owners to function? And again, how are we interested in, um, uh, value circulating within that system and beyond. Yeah. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for talking to me about your work today. I mean, I've learned so much from it in the past and it was a real pleasure learning from, from the source. So uh, thanks a lot. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Mm, thank you. I'm